As Iyanla Van Zant once said, it's important that we share our experiences with other people. Your story will heal you and your story will heal somebody else. At Project Sleep, we believe that your stories matter, which is why we train people with sleep disorders on how to share their stories through our Rising Voices program. This Rising Voices podcast series features a variety of firsthand stories from people living with sleep disorders around the world. Each person's story offers unique and important insights. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique, which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. Hello. Hi from Los Angeles. I'm Julie Flygar and I am here with Bob Cloud, who is in Vermont. Say hi, Bob. Hi. Bob Cloud is a retired lawyer now living in Northern Vermont. He grew up in Ohio and married an Indiana girl 48 years ago with whom he has two children. Bob practiced family, criminal and general law for 30 years, during which time he learned to live with narcolepsy. His excessive daytime sleepiness, cataplexy, and related symptoms appeared at age 33 during Bob's first year of night law school. Now, 48 years later, and as a rising voices of narcolepsy speaker, Bob is happy to share his journey in which supportive family, creative doctors, and pharmaceutical providers, and understanding friends stood by him as a husband, father, lawyer, patient, and occasional fisherman with narcolepsy. So with that, please take it away, Bob. Thank you, Julie. With that introduction, we can go back to when I was age 29. And I'd been teaching and served as a counselor in high schools for a period of time. And then decided, we decided that I was going to go to night law school while continuing to work full time during the day. Four years later, two kids later, I graduated from law school. I passed the Ohio bar and earned my Ohio Supreme Court license to practice. And we felt pretty good about life. But at the same time, over those last years of law school and then the first years of practice, I began noticing and confronting a series of events uh, not connected, apparently, which began to cause us some worry. Events like playing ball, softball with other folks from work, running from one base to another, trying to stretch out a single to a double, and I'd fall flat on my face between the bases. It'd be like a Pete Rose head first slide but I'd end up 10 feet from the base because I had collapsed. 
My leg muscles weren't working. Other instances I'd be playing with or chasing our dog. There's some concrete steps. I'd run up three or four of those steps and then suddenly collapse backwards down those steps onto the cement, lacerating my head. Or other instances, I'd be with folks in the office. We'd be laughing, joking about something, and my knees would begin to buckle noticeably. And I thought to myself, well, I guess that happens sometimes. Or when I felt playing ball or chasing the dog, I would think, well, clumsy me, run more carefully. Other instances would be when going to sleep sometimes, I'd have what I called then nightmares, though I had never been one to have nightmares. I wouldn't be fully asleep, but Margaret couldn't wake me up either. And those nightmares were always in the form of some person breaking into our house to do us physical harm. And so I would react, I'd lash out or try to lash out. That happened occasionally. Another event that I wasn't prepared for was waking up in the morning, still in bed, just waking up, and suddenly I'd be completely paralyzed. Couldn't move any part of my body, arms, legs, not even a little, little finger. And that would last for maybe up to a, a minute or two at the most. And then it would pass. And at that time, we started to realize after these events over several years, something's wrong. These events shouldn't be happening. We need to see a doctor, but we didn't have a doctor. So Margaret had been working in a clinical lab at a university teaching hospital. So she knew some graduates, knew some residents, knew one that was just starting his family practice. He was in his first year of practice. So we picked him and kind of by coincidence, Margaret went with me and we sat with him and I was a worried man. And we talked about the sleep attacks. Well, that's one I hadn't mentioned. Margaret thinks all this happened started to happen a few years earlier when all of a sudden I'd fall asleep without any notice. An example would be we'd be sitting at the dinner table, the four of us talking about something, and I would begin a sentence that was appropriate, and I'd end the sentence with nonsense because in the course of the sentence, I'd fallen asleep and would promptly wake up but that was a sleep attack. So we talked with the doctor, now calling Dr. First Year, in his first year of family practice, about the sleep attacks and about the paralysis, words turning to scribble when I was writing, running the bases and falling down, chasing the dogs, the nightmares. And he listened carefully to it all, asked some probing questions, then excused himself for maybe five minutes, came back and told me I had narcolepsy, a word I had never heard of. And I didn't realize at the time 
talk about this later, but here I was talking to a family doctor, first visit in his first year, going over these symptoms, and he promptly told me exactly what I had. Almost unheard of. Then he explained the narcolepsy. Now, this was back in 19, probably 1979. I had never heard the word narcolepsy. I didn't like the sound of it. But I liked the fact that there was something, a condition, that included all these experiences. So he explained that in his understanding then, this is more than 40 years ago, that narcolepsy is basically a, he called it a neurological sleep disorder, where the normal stages of sleep are disrupted and fragmented and therefore don't occur at their normal time and the sleep stages in their normal sequence at night. And they burst through at inappropriate times during the day, either as sleep attacks or excessive daytime sleepiness, or as collapsing, where you end up with your muscles in the same form as when you dream. They don't move your involuntary muscles. So he said, narcolepsy, there's no known cause, no known cure. And it's chronic. It will last all your life. Uh, it might be progressive. It's worse for some people, but it's not fatal. And most people receiving some medical treatment and engaging other activities are able to, to continue working in one form or another. And then he sent me to the University Sleep Disorder Center to confirm his diagnosis. And I learned there that narcolepsy affects one in 2,000 people. In um, the United States, about 200,000 people. In the world, that's 3 million people. And while there for tests and talking to the sleep doctors over the years, I've learned more about the, the symptoms of narcolepsy. Basically, they're considered to be five. Excessive daytime sleepiness, which usually takes the form of not being able to stay awake for substantial periods of time during the day, which might be often during the daytime at work. Cataplexy, which is the loss of muscle tone or muscle control, and the most serious form of cataplexy is sudden loss of all involuntary muscle control, and that means you fall down because your leg muscles don't work. A less serious form, partial cataplexy, might take the form of uh, a nodding head if the neck muscles are affected or slurred speech if the mouth muscles are affected or drooping arms or hands. Hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations. Remember I talked about what I called nightmares at the time, somebody invading our house, me lashing out. Uh, those are hallucinations and they're hypnagogic when they occur at the beginning of sleep or going to sleep. Hypnopompic if they occur as they may when waking up, kind of when you're in the twilight zone. Maybe that's why they seem so real. The fourth symptom, sleep paralysis. Recall I 
talked about the experience of not being able to move sometimes when waking up and the disrupted nighttime sleep because the normal stages of sleep are no longer occurring in sequence. Basically, there are two types of narcolepsy, narcolepsy with cataplexy, which is the loss of muscle control, and narcolepsy without cataplexy. And over the years, it's been amazing to me how much they've learned about, they being sleep researchers, about sleep and sleep disorders by studying narcolepsy, and especially narcolepsy with cataplexy. When I was first diagnosed, they did not know what the cause of narcolepsy with cataplexy was. They've since learned that it's caused by the near absence or total absence of a neuropeptide or neurotransmitter produced by neurons in the brain. They're called orexin or hypocretin. Their function is to affect the sleep-wake cycle. And for some reason, those with narcolepsy with cataplexy don't have those neurotransmitters anymore. Why they don't have them is another question. There's almost a consensus that it's an autoimmune disease accompanied by some other environmental or physiological triggers that are still being researched on on that. Less is known about the cause of narcolepsy without cataplexy. The, my original visit to the Sleep Disorder Center, my diagnosis consisted of two tests. One is polysomnography that takes place at night where you're wired with electrodes and the technicians trace or the machine traces your brain waves and other vital signs during the night. The other test takes place during the day. It's called the multiple sleep latency test where they measure how quickly one goes into dream sleep or REM sleep during the course of five naps during the day. Uh, and I mentioned dream sleep or REM sleep. REM, R-E-M, stands for rapid eye movement sleep, which is characteristic of dream sleep. So the doctor told me what the normal treatment is for narcolepsy at the time, and this is uh, to a large degree true today, taking wake-promoting medications or stimulants to help with daytime sleepiness or excessive daytime sleepiness, including sleep attacks. Nighttime medications uh, for daytime sleepiness to improve daytime sleepiness and to lessen cataplexy. Also antidepressants for cataplexy, uh, not because Persons with narcolepsy are depressed, although some are, but because they have learned that the antidepressants suppress REM sleep or dream sleep and therefore lessen the episode of cataplexy. And then they also discussed trying to schedule daytime naps if and when felt that was helpful. I should mention here that they made great progress in the medications over the, the 30 years. And now there are two new medications approved by the FDA and on the market, 
to improve wakefulness and also to improve cataplexy. And probably four more that I know of that are still in clinical trials, uh, not available now until they're approved, but much research is being done, especially along the lines of uh, what they call an agonist, an erexin agonist, which would allow uh, the sleep-wake cycle to be affected by those neurotransmitters. Now I was a person with narcolepsy, and indeed we were a family with narcolepsy. And I thought to myself, well, this is going to be easy. I already get my share of exercise. I'm pretty active. I have a good sleep regime. I usually sleep eight hours a night at about the same time, which was recommended. Uh, it was also recommended that we learn which foods induce sleep or prevent sleep and which eating habits are likely to induce sleep or prevent sleep. You know, I learned those. And I thought this part's going to be easy. A pleasant surprise was how refreshing uh, the naps were. I never had taken much naps, but I learned that I could be anywhere in a conference or at home, find a chair somewhere against a wall, sit down, lean my head back, set my alarm, cell phone for 15 minutes, uh, and I'd wake up feeling that I'd dreamt the whole night and feel refreshed. And I would do this, I'd do it riding a bike. At the time I was doing triathlons, uh, canoeing, running, and biking with my brother, and I wouldn't hesitate to get off the bike and lay behind a bush and nap for 15 minutes and wake up feeling uh, as refreshed and as strong as I could. Or if I was driving the kids around in a car, so I had the picture of the front seats and dashboard of a car there, the kids would be young, and I'd say to them, if I felt either sleepiness coming on or I just wanted to avoid it, I'd say, you guys, you can talk and listen to your music, but I'm going to take a nap, and I'd put the seat back back, set the alarm for 15 minutes, wake up 15 minutes later, feeling like I've been sleeping all night. So that part of learning to live with narcolepsy was easy. But what was difficult was the medications. The, the stimulants and wake-promoting drugs, they work. They were easy. I still take those. But the medications to lessen cataplexy, those medications were developed for another purpose, and we were using them with a permitted different use to lessen cataplexy. But many of those drugs, like the antidepressants, as I mentioned, their function was to suppress REM sleep. And in my case, they would work, one would work for several months, I'd improve, but then my body would become tolerant to them, and they not only stopped working, but if I withdrew from them with my doctor's permission, the effect was an intensity in the frequency and the type of cataplexy. And I probably went through half a dozen of these medications, experimenting with my doctor over the years. 
and each time the tolerance developed and I withdraw from one to start another and the cataplexy would go up another plateau. So this started probably a three-year period of mysterious, repetitive, increasing cataplexy. I remember regularly uh, standing in the bathroom and something would happen to trigger the cataplexy and I think to myself, I'm going to collapse and fall down and bang my head on the porcelain sink. Or I'd be at the top of an escalator and I would have a sudden uh, unforeseen cataplexy attack and I'd think, I'm going to fall down on this escalator and it'll probably take me to the bottom. And it's, uh, that's what I thought would happen and that's exactly what did happen almost immediately. Or I'd be on a dock. Uh, out on the dock, we had a boat or I'd fish off the dock. Something would happen and I'd think to myself, I'm going to fall down and I'm going to fall into this deep water over my head. I hope I can relax enough to get my head above water. And that's exactly what happened. I should mention the thing that would happen to trigger the cataplexy attack. Uh, and I learned this at the first visit to the sleep specialist was an emotional reaction. Could be excitement, could be anger, often laughter. And that's when the cataplexy would burst through unexpected during the day, burst through almost immediately and cause an immediate and total collapse. I remember the escalator one because it did take me down to the bottom of the escalator but didn't take me all the way off, so I lay there unable to move a muscle, and each succeeding step cut my scalp. Amazingly, nobody else was on the escalator, nor was there a security guard around. Typically, after a cataplexy attack, which might last several seconds, up to a couple minutes, and during that time, I, or anybody with that type of attack, would normally be alert, know what was happening, but unable to talk, unable to move any muscle, could hear and see, but not communicate in any way. Until at the end of those few minutes, you could stand up and tell somebody uh, what had happened. In the escalator incident, I stood up and walked out the store and nobody ever said a word, surprisingly. As those attacks kept getting worse and worse, it got to the point where I couldn't cross the street and see a wait walk sign change without collapsing in the middle of the street. Or I couldn't hear a phone ring without collapsing. And I had reached what my doctor called a continuing state of cataplexy. And he had tried all the medications he knew about, but he was a researcher. And he was aware of research being done in Canada on not a new medication, a medication that was somewhat old, had been around, but a doctor there was using it to treat patients and noting the effect it was having on persons with narcolepsy, especially cataplexy. So he got in touch with that doctor. So my sleep specialist communicated with and arranged for me to go to the hospital in Toronto, Canada. 
And I had to spend three weeks there in a wheelchair because I'd be withdrawing from the other medications and the cataplexy would increase. And, and towards the end of that, I started on the new medication. Interestingly enough, the new medication had been around for a long time, was compounded in France, put together, then shipped to this doctor in Toronto. And when I returned from Toronto three weeks later, it would be shipped down to me. So it was a long journey. And then because it proved to be so effective so quickly, my doctor applied to the FDA to get an individual investigative new drug approval so he could continue to treat myself and maybe a dozen others in our area and from outside the area with this medication. And that began uh, what I call the 20 years war. That was 1982 when I went to Canada and came back. And I often wondered to myself and said to others and said to doctors, why me and why us? Why can't other folks who have cataplexy to any extent also benefit from this medication? The problem was it had a medical benefit use that it was developed for a couple of decades earlier, but was no longer used in that way. And the Drug Enforcement Agency would say it has no known medical benefit to persons. And we would say to the FDA, oh, yes, it does. Look at us. Look at other persons with narcolepsy. Finally, at the end of 20 years, in 2002, uh, that medication was approved by the FDA and is now used in large part by persons with narcolepsy. I was about to say narcolepsy with cataplexy, but it's also been approved because of its effect on excessive daytime sleepiness. So then for the next 20 years, I was able to continue my law practice. I should note that I took that same medication and the same dosage last night as I have every night for the past 38 years. Same dosage and it has the same effect. And I can probably do 90% of what I want to do. Still, the narcolepsy and the cataplexy raises its ugly head sometimes. If I'm tired or haven't gotten enough sleep or doing something I haven't done before, I have to be careful. I know that I'll collapse. And I still go fishing, and there's nothing like the strike of a good fish to excite me enough to fall down. And I don't put my chair too close to the edge anymore, because I know that could cause problems. And surprisingly, it hasn't caused many problems in the law practice. For one practicing law, especially a solo practice like mine, you can pretty much control your own schedule. A lot of my law practice was family and criminal law, and so there was a lot of courtroom work. But you could always anticipate, I found, what the emotions were going to be and prepare for them so there wasn't any sudden surprise. What I find uh, the two most difficult emotional triggers now are 
very funny laughter, especially in the family, where things are the funniest. My son will often make a remark and crack a joke and run to try to catch me before I fall. Or if I get angry with my wife, and that, that does happen sometimes, even after the 48 years. And if I disagree with her and feel kind of strongly, she'll see my eyes start to dart back and forth like they do in rapid eye movement sleep. And she knows I'm angry before I even show it or say anything. So I, I lose those arguments, even though I'm on the winning side. And I mentioned these incidents because I think it's, it helps. It's helped me a great deal over the years to talk with other persons with narcolepsy, and to go to conferences, to meet with groups, because I get hope from talking with other people, learning their successes, and learning that, that I'm not alone. My daughter lives in Liverpool, home of probably the world's greatest soccer team, and they have a, a motive song they call Walk On, which I think expresses the same feeling I'm trying to convey here. And you can read the lyrics, walk on through the wind, walk on through the rain, though your dreams be tossed and blown. Walk on, walk on with hope in your heart, and you'll never walk alone. You'll never walk alone. So I mentioned that my experience was being accurately diagnosed by the doctor in his first year of general family practice on our first visit, which I mentioned is almost unheard of because even today, the average delay between onset of symptoms and eventual diagnosis is eight to 15 years. And during that time, individuals will not know they have narcolepsy, they have something fragmenting their life. They might be misdiagnosed with other things, and, and that is unacceptable. Probably under 50% of people currently diagnosed, under 50% of people with narcolepsy are currently diagnosed. The rest remain undiagnosed. I often ask myself, why me? Not why me having narcolepsy, but why me having the experience of my doctor accurately diagnosing me the first time I saw him? Or why me living in a town that I could have a speech, a sleep specialist, who's one of the handful of most respected sleep specialists in the world with his research, and which I benefited from, and who was willing to send me to Canada. So I'm willing and have been happy to talk about my individual journey with narcolepsy, which began in my mid-30s. Most people with narcolepsy will get it in their early or late teens or early 20s. Uh, more and more, it's being diagnosed in, in pediatric patients. And, and everybody's different, but I know that most other persons with narcolepsy will get it earlier than I did and therefore will have it longer and in a different way because of their own circumstances. Uh, and everybody has to have and talk with their own sleep specialist. 
but I'm happy to talk with any individual or any group at any conference at any time to share my story and to share a little bit more hope and to contribute my voice to the rising voices of narcolepsy. Thank you for listening. Yay. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Thank you for sharing your story tonight. <laughs> I just love Bob's story and I should mention that um, his journey as part of the early use of the nighttime medication to it getting approved, like I had studied that whole approval back when I was in law school, so 12 years ago, and I'd actually written about Bob and some of his testimony that he'd given in a, a paper I wrote in law school. And so it's always just like, I remember the first time he emailed me and just getting to know Bob and have him be part of this program means so much to me because to me, he was already like a big celebrity. And I'm just so thankful for him and all that he does to be part of this, but also to talk to anyone, like he said, that wants to chat about their experience. It's just, it really means a lot and it, in all the ways you've given back over the years. So thank you, Bob. That's why we value Project Sweep so much. <laughs> thank you. I think we did have a question about your law practice. How did you, you mentioned it a little bit, but you know, it just seems pretty impressive that you were a lawyer. So how did you balance your job as an attorney uh, through all this? Well, you did what you had to do, I guess. Uh, you tried to limit your work. The most important thing was getting eight hours sleep. And so that uh, left you time to prepare a case or to talk with clients, but you might not spend the time that you would want to spend. And I mentioned there were rarely any problems, but in that, as well as other activities, if I knew that there could be a problem, then I would tell somebody I trusted ahead of time, which might be a prosecutor, I was a public defender, or the judge, or a probation officer, or somebody. So if I were to have or suffer partial or complete cataplexy, they'd know what was going on. And I would do that in other activities. If, I'm, if I was in a gym working on a treadmill or going fishing with other people, I would make sure somebody knew what was going on. But a couple instances in the law practice, which I remember now, two always stick out. One was I interviewed a client and we hit it off. The chemistry was right. I was going to represent him. I walked him out of the office to his car. And halfway to his car, I collapsed right on my face. I never saw that client again. <laughs> a more serious and kind of intriguing event was I was representing a fellow on a, a robbery charge. And we had a jury trial. And at the end of the trial, the judge reads the instructions to the jury. And the defendant and his lawyer and me sit there and listen to make sure the instructions are fair. And I woke up at the end of those jury instructions and realized that I missed them all. My first concern was from a client that nothing unfair was given to the jury as an instruction. So I met with the judge and uh, the prosecutor right away, told him what happened, asked him to read back the instructions with the court reporter which they did, and they were okay. My next concern was my client deserves to know that. And if I tell him that, that I fell asleep at that point, I'm going to have to tell him that he should get advice from a separate lawyer 
and that separate lawyer might want to file an appeal, which is exactly what happened. The lawyer filed the appeal based on ineffective assistance of counsel because counsel fell asleep. But the appellate judges read over the trial transcript, found that no mistakes were made, and the conviction was upheld. But it did bring kind of an ethical dilemma at the time. Aside from those two, I'm, I'm, the practice was not much affected by my narcolepsy. Although my wife disagrees with me, she thinks it was affected substantially. Uh, she thinks I probably saw less clients and got less clients uh, because of it. That may or may not be true. <laughs> but you're willing to admit it. Uh, so maybe there's some truth. In, <laughs> the truth is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> some truth in there, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I know exactly what you mean. I think sometimes I struggle um, between, you know, giving a, a big message of hope and um, because I really do do a lot with my life. But there's sometimes, you know, we talk about the spoon theory and sometimes we have limited spoons. So we have to choose our priorities a little bit more closely sometimes or um, just can't always do it all. <laughs> so um, you like to do more. My son always says, don't let the perfect get in the way of the good. Exactly. That is that has been the motto of the day for me um, recently. So I love it. We do have one more question. Rachel asked, what first sparked your interest in participating in the Rising Voices of Narcolepsy program? Well, more than anything, Project Sleep and all it does to try to inform folks about narcolepsy. And I enjoy talking with people. I've done this in conferences, so I, uh, it was something that interested me. I'm happy to do it. Well, we're so glad to have you be part of this program. And thank you again for joining. And thank you to Bob for sharing your wonderful story. Thank you. All right. Bye, everyone. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.